Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Podcast, equipping people to live successful Christian lives. We're talking about reconciliation today. Week two in reconciling ourselves with God, that God is the initiator. I was thinking this week, what is true for you and me and all of humanity is the difficulty of trying to make sense out of life many times, isn't it? That we're trying to restore and reconcile and bring harmony to really everything in our world, Um, especially this year, right? We're trying to reconcile all these crazy things in our life that have gone on and, and so many things that continue to go on. And so... As I said last week, at the, at the heart of Christmas is reconciliation. I hope that you understand that. God sending Jesus to reconcile us to himself. In reconciliation, you realize barriers um, begin to come down. They begin to be torn down in our community. Uh, people who are estranged and divided, they get reunited. Hostility and woundedness get replaced with healing and goodwill. You know, the old prophets of Israel who longed for reconciliation said that our world thirsted for it so deeply that they would use great art and imagination to picture that act of reconciliation. The prophet Isaiah said this in talking about the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah eleven six said this, this is the picture. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, no violence, no pain. A little child, powerless, will lead them. That was the picture in their heart and their mind in this Old Testament prophet Isaiah as he talks about what true reconciliation looks like. You know, when we imagine reconciliation happening in our world that is so desperately needed, even on a grander scale. I mean, we think many times, well, what would it look like for North Korea and South Korea to live together as people of peace? Or what would it be like for the Israelis and the Palestinians to live in harmony, right? There's the things I'm sure we think about many times. What would that really look like? That would be absolutely amazing. In our own country, what would it be like if the wounds of 250 years of race slavery and years of racial injustice got healed? I mean, really, what would that look like? I mean, can we imagine that today? Or we imagine in a personal way a friend who is married and they've been estranged for a lot of years and it runs really deep in their heart and imagine a marriage getting healed, the very act of reconciliation Visions of being reconciled, what they do is they capture our hearts many times. It's the thing that we really long for down deep because divisions go down deeply within us in families and in marriages, workplaces and gangs and and nations and whatever it may, may be. So way too often, even religious groups, spiritual communities, even Christians become one more divisive faction trying to power up on other groups of people. And uh, that is why spiritually, personally, socially, systematically, the crying need for our world is to be reconciled, isn't it? That really is the crying need. We want that. We can't seem to do it ourselves. You know, if we could have done it, we would have done it by now, wouldn't we? But at the heart of this story today that I want to talk to you about 
is the Christmas story. As we said last week, our key verse going through this is 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Paul says this to this little church in Corinth. God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. You know, I'd just like to invite us as a church along in this journey that we would really be students of reconciliation in all of our lives, that we would take this personally, not just listen to this message and kind of stand back from it and say that just sounds good, but to be people of God means to be people of reconciliation in our world, to try to reconcile the differences with God's help in our families, in our marriages, in our homes, our workplace, students with other friends, uh, teachers, principles, that we would truly be people of reconciliation. That's what it means to be partakers of this word, to be reconciled with other people. And yes, ultimately, we want to be reconciled with God. And we see this, that we are called to be agents of reconciliation. And I just want us to think about this. I think as we come to this holiday season, we come, hard to believe, not this week, but the following week is Christmas already. Can you believe it? But as that we realize, I think the best part of the holiday season is that, that time when families get together. I also think the hardest part of the holiday season is when the time families get together, right? <laughs> That's really true. We, we could experience that. We all grew up in a family. We all grew up in one of those families where somebody had issues. And I want to take us back into the Word today to look at this again. There are some jacked up families in the Bible, right? And there, are, there really is. And I want to share one of those stories today and kind of look into the story that, that is so deep through the old and Jesus brings it into the new. And a quick summary of the book of Genesis, if you will. This first book of the Bible that is a lot about families. It, you, you, we know Cain, we, Abel, we see this. And Cain killed his brother Abel. We have that. A couple generations after that, this guy named Lamech comes along. He's a polygamist. He introduces polygamy to the world in a, in a murder. Then Noah got drunk. His family is an absolute train wreck. Abraham impregnated his wife's made. Jacob deceived his father, right? We see this. Stole his twin brother's inheritance. Jacob had 12 sons by two wives and two maids. He favored one of them, Joseph did, so much so that the other sons kidnapped Joseph, wanted to kill him, and one of the brothers named Judah had them sell Joseph, their brother, into slavery, cover his robe with goat's blood to make their dad think Joseph was dead, the first book of the Bible, right? I mean, that's the first part of that book. These are families who made it into the Bible. That's why I love God's Word, because it is so real. It doesn't paint a picture of some imaginary, right, fairy tale. This is real life. This is real flesh and blood. This is real families. And so these are families that made it in the Bible. So sit up straight. Your family is doing way better than you ever thought. How many of you say amen to that? You're like, wow, that's our, yes, yes, your family's doing way better. And uh, as we look at this, in the middle of all the, this dysfunction comes today's story that I want to look at. So what makes this story such an incredible God story? That we realize God's word is one incredible story about him and what he's done for us in redeeming us. That first of all, the Christmas story is an unbelievable, incoherent, and impossible promise. That's how you know it's God's story. 
And so some of you are like, I don't know. This doesn't seem possible. But if you look in it, you stick around all the weirdness, you come to the end, you're going to see that this is a God story. In Genesis 38, this man Judah leaves his brothers and goes down to a place called Adullam and marries a Canaanite girl. To an ancient Israelite reader, this would immediately mean trouble. He went outside of his own people and it went trouble into the Canaanite tribe. And you see this, in that day, you did not leave your brother, so they would immediately understand there's a broken family that's going on. And marrying a Canaanite meant if you were an Israelite, that's a descendant of Abraham, you were choosing idolatry and unfaithfulness. So Judah is going down a very bad road from the very first sentence. And Judah and his wife, and we will we, we really never learn her name, have three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The boys grow up, we're told Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Wow. You'll notice the writer wants us to be sure here to catch Ur is the older brother because he says twice, it's Judah's firstborn. You know, even in our day, really firstborns are disproportionately the achievers, the leaders, they are presidents, they are prime ministers and all those things. In the ancient world, the firstborn would be heir to absolutely everything and would get all the good stuff. And that's why his name is Ur. He's handsome Ur. He's strong Ur. He's smart Ur, we all want to live in that land, right? It's true, but it turns out that he is wickeder. So he, here's the story really fast. In the ancient world, in Israel, but also in other nations, if a woman's husband died, her father-in-law was obligated to have her marry the next oldest son, right? They, they obviously did not have any kind of uh, national or, or welfare system or safety net or anything. So everybody would have, uh, would have recognized her father-in-law, Judah, is obligated. He has to do this. And his second son is Onan. This is a polygamous culture. Presumably Onan would have um, otherwise, but if Onan had a kid by Tamar, that child would be the firstborn of the inheritance, which, mean, which would mean a financial loss for Onan, his little brood of other wives. So Onan figured out a way to cheat Tamar and shame her in that culture with barrenness and get away with it. This is in the Bible, Genesis 38. Remember, this is a Christmas story. Maybe read it to your kids when they're in their 20s. Maybe they can maybe handle it by then. To the ancient reader, Tamar would be a tragic victim of that day. I mean, they would feel for her. Uh, you know, she wanted a good thing for, for one thing to bring offspring into the world. And in the ancient world, survival was very dicey. And the human population struggled. That was a good thing for a woman to do, to want to have children. Not only that, but though she's a Canaanite pagan idolatrist, she wants to be part of the story of the people of God. The line of Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And she was devoting herself. Here's this Canaanite woman to be a mother of the people of God. Yet she had not been given one wicked man but two. And they both died and she's still barren. So Judah, her father-in-law, has this moral obligation to Tamar. 
would be exceedingly clear in that day and to the ancient reader and to every reader. We have to put ourselves, understandably, in that position in that society to really understand the story. His obligation would be to have her marry his third son, Shelah. He tells Tamar, as the reader would expect, you go home to your dad. I'm going to raise this third son, Shelah, as the reader would expect. And as you go home, I will call you back when he is ready. And what happens is he leaves her hanging and he never calls her back. And after some period Judah's wife dies, and Judah does not spend very much time mourning. There's a real interesting contrast that I hope as you look inside of this scripture today in this story, between his story and Joseph's story, when Jacob thinks his son Joseph has died, and he mourns, and he refuses to be comforted. And in this story, Judah's wife died, and he doesn't mourn for very long. He's happy to be comforted. He's ready to date again pretty quickly but he's kind of not an e-harmony guy or a Christian mingle guy. He's, he's a Tinder guy. He swipes right. And that meant going down to a place called Timna. And Tamar, Tamar hears this. And to our surprise, this Canaanite woman goes into action. She disguises herself as a prostitute, wears a veil so she wouldn't be recognized, and Judah comes by and propositions her and offers to pay her a young goat from the flock. And so she says, hey, can I have your seal and cord and staff as collateral, which took place in that day? Kind of like a credit card or a password to the bank account, right? And he says, okay, they have sex. And although he doesn't know it, she gets pregnant by the father of her two husbands. Remember, this is a Christmas story. Maybe tell this to your kids at age 60. I don't know, you know, read that one there, but maybe they'll be able to handle that at that point. Judah will be, you understand, both the father of Tamar's offspring and Tamar's father-in-law. This means, if you think it through, she will be the mother of these children and their sister-in-law. I mean, how messed up is that? I mean, your family's doing really well at this point. I just want you to know that because this is a really jacked up story inside of Scripture, but it's in here for a reason, right? And so what happens is Judah goes home, tries to FedEx the goat for the down payment, but nobody can find the prostitute by the side of the road. So he says, forget it. I don't want that word to get out anyways. I thought I slept with a prostitute, and I'll be a laughingstock, and our whole family will be in everybody's eyes, never mind. Several months pass, and then word comes to Judah that his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, is wearing maternity clothes. She had gotten herself pregnant, of course. He has no idea who the father is. So it's up to him as the father-in-law to figure out how to respond and what to do with her. And this is what he says in Genesis 38.4. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Even in the ancient world, that is brutal. Yes. So much so that it's very artfully told in the text and the brutality expressed in these two words, bring and burn. They, they bring, but just when... They're getting ready to light the match. She sends the seal and the cord and the staff to Judah with a message. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And she said, and she had to see if you recognize whose seal, cord, and staff these are. Ring any bells, Dad? An incredible story with layer after layer after layer after layer. Remember, Judah 
was the man who sold his brother Joseph into slavery, took Joseph's robe, the coat of many colors, dipped it in the blood of a goat and brought it to the father. Jacob said to him, see if you recognize whose robe this is. Now, precisely, precisely the same language is used to confront Judah that Judah used with his dad, Jacob. Once more, there's a story with misleading clothes, deep deception, a goat to cover things up, and precisely the same question. See if you recognize this. Recognize that operative word here. A big word. Not only in that story, but it's in our story. Judah is in a single sentence now forced to recognize his treachery, his sin, his brokenness, not only his daughter-in-law, but decades earlier with his father Jacob and his brother Joseph. But in Genesis 38, 26, Judah recognized him, no kidding, and said, she is more righteous than I. God begins to do a work. They call off the execution, and Tamar lives, and she gives birth to, in fact, two children, twins, and there's another interesting struggle with the firstborn where the secondborn ends up being the one whom the line of the children of Abraham will flow. Tamar, the rejected Canaanite girl, gets to be a mother of Israel. She gets to be a part of God's great adventure after all. The moral of the story is, if you're a woman and her, firstborn, her first husband dies from wickedness, and you marry his brother, and he refuses to impregnate you, and he dies, and your father-in-law won't let you marry the third son, just wait for your mother-in-law to die and pretend to be a prostitute and have your father-in-law's kids, and it'll all work out in the end. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> this is a Christmas story, and we forget this. I mean, this is, this is a Christmas story. What a weird story, isn't it? This is crazy. How in the world did that even get in the Bible? Conventionally, religious people really don't like to talk about this story very much. They get a little squeamish. That's why you don't hear this story talked behind the pulpit very much. You feel like, oh, this is really funky. But as we talk about reconciliation, you have to bring in the stories of God's Word, right? And you have to see that God's hand is at work, even in our families today, that seem so messed up, right? Or extended families, wherever they may be, right? I mean, couldn't Tamar have a more wholesome way to deal with her problem? She could have sold essential oils or learned how to do some t- something else. Well, the Bible doesn't really say, but the ancient world was a very brutal place, much like ours today. It's crazy to see the, the brutality against humanity. You see what's happening to women in South Sudan today, in parts of... Africa, right, through Boko Haram. I mean, do you see, do you read these stories that are taking, our world is brutal. But just like that, that they live in a real world where there is great evil, and people are real, and people are complex, and their actions are often ambiguous, and and the reader has to puzzle this all out, and you have to read God's Word with all of your mind as you're looking at these stories that are based on another story from the Old Testament. Here is the woman, Tamar, in, who's marginalized because of her gender and her ethnicity and her status as being childless and twice-widowed Gentile woman 
She is the victim of sexual misconduct. And instead of being cowed into passive surrender, which the reader would expect, she shows remarkable courage and initiative and determination and creativity. And in the end, she triumphs over an oppressor and an unjust system that is completely stacked against her and becomes a part of the great story of God's reconciliation. The reason that this... This major character in this story is this, the one that you want to pay so close attention to is God because God cares about Tamar. This is what makes this story a God story because it is so remarkable. I hope you see that. What else is in the story? Number two, God is intent on creating a redemptive, reconciling community. He wants a people to be with. That is the heart of the Christmas story. He wants all of his people who everybody thinks have been left outside to be brought in and to be brought near. He wants to reconcile people to himself and to one another and goes to work even on wicked old Judah. Some of you maybe have people in your life, you're thinking, they're wicked. In my family, they're wicked. They've done things, they continue to live opposed to God, but God is working on their heart today as well. God is intent on creating a reconciling, redemptive community. And Judah recognized him and says, she is more righteous than I. And that is the beginning of a little glimmer of hope, of humanity. Many years later, the brothers are with Joseph, including Judah once more, although they did not recognize Joseph. You go back to that story, Joseph recognizes them, and they don't recognize him in a very dramatic moment, in a situation that actually changes the moral trajectory of the human race. Tamar gives birth to twins. And of course, we wonder, well, what happens to Tamar? What happens to the twins? And so, oddly enough, the writer of Genesis does not tell us. She never appears after chapter 38 of Genesis until Matthew chapter 1, that we see this is the genealogy of of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Really, Matthew, you had to put this in there? Yeah. Really, you're going to bring this story up? Really? Yeah. You didn't mention any of the other mothers. You didn't say who Isaac's mother was or who Jacob's mother was. It's very odd. Genealogies, as we talked about last week, were such a huge deal in that culture. And, and I think many times we look through it and we think, well, this is dull and this is boring, but every name in the list is absolutely vital because it's a story of somebody's life. Listen, as we look at genealogies, you see they were how people learned about their identity and their culture, where they came from, who they really were, and all their stories were wrapped up in these names, and they would memorize these genealogies and pass them down from one generation to another. It means we're somebody, we're a people, we have a tribe, and we have a story, and they were like action movies, and they loved them. And you know, Hebrew genealogies we talked about, they didn't include women, but this one did. And and not just a woman, but a woman who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her, and she's in the family tree of the Messiah. Wow. 
You think, well, she's not one of us. She's not an Israelite, which means, wait for it, Jesus isn't from an Israelite perspective, a pure blood or our guy. He's partly their guy. He's partly Canaanite. Are you kidding me? And Tamar is not the only woman in the genealogy. It's like Matthew just poured over the Old Testament saying, who are the most you know, crazy, weirded out characters, families I could stick in God's story? And he puts them in there because they're part of the real story of Jesus Christ. They're part of the reconciled, redeeming story in the Bible. This is a Christmas story. Why did you do this? Why did you put this in there, Matthew? Because the time has come with Jesus to proclaim the gospel. Everybody is welcome, nobody is perfect, and anything is possible. Third, Jesus had to be with us so that he, we could know that he is, was for us. You know, that God is not only with us in our strength, he's with us in our weaknesses today. In the weaknesses that we feel that we go through, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus, not counting our sins against us. I don't know about you, but that makes me very happy today that our sins are not counted against us because of what Jesus Christ has done. Can I hear an amen? Not counting my sins against you, me, or whatever, that we know what God is like. How? Because Jesus comes upon the scene that outsiders aren't left outside anymore, and sinners and saints that all get messed up, that grace starts flowing heavily, so heavily that Judah and Tamar are together again in Matthew, and their children are the conduits through whom the love of God flows through Jesus Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that's the message for you and me this Christmas season. Number four, the lesson that comes from the story, when God blesses you, nothing could get in the way of it. Can I hear an amen? amen? If God can reconcile Israelite, Canaanite, Judah, Tamar, saints, sinners, prostitutes, patriarchs, oppressors with the oppressed, who lies beyond the reconciling power of Jesus Christ? Nobody. Because it turns out that Tamar's story is a Christmas story as a part of Jesus' story, and the most unlikely people end up coming in. And that's what the human race has loved so deeply about Jesus for over 2,000 years, that no matter who you are and no matter what you have done, that we are, can be a part of God's redemptive, reconciling story that you and I have a heavenly Father who loves us. We don't even understand all of that most of the time because of the things that we've done, or the things that we've come through, but that Jesus comes into this story and into our story. That Jesus is in your story today as a believer in Christ. Then as you're praying for your families, I mean, really, we come to this time of the year and our minds go to families, don't they? Our, our minds go to our upbringings. Our minds go to maybe parents that are no longer 
alive. Our minds go to memories. Our, our minds go to the things that we used to see our aunt and uncles at, but they're no longer there, our grandparents. And it brings up all of these things. And Jesus comes into the story and, and uh, helps us to realize that he wants to reconcile our families. That I'm sure in your family and my family, we need a miracle. Our extended families, we think today, wow, that uh, there's a lot of difficulties. There's people that are away from God. This is the Christmas story. This is it. Yeah, it's, it's about Jesus. That's what the story is about. It's about Jesus. But the outsiders get to come inside. And they get to be redeemed. So, so if you're honest about it, kind of like Judah, there's some stuff maybe today in your relationship with your Heavenly Father that needs to get fixed. As you sit here today, you think, wow, that there's some distance, maybe there's some behavior that, that needs to be made right, you know, sins that need to be confessed so that he can forgive. There's some behavior you're not proud of. So today, you know, in this Advent season, God wants you to be reconciled with him more importantly than anything else. So would you do it today for your father who absolutely loves you and is crazy in love with you? no matter what you're in, no matter what you're going through today, that there doesn't have to be distance between you and the Heavenly Father, that you can come close today, right? Whatever's going on, that you can live a fully surrendered life with God's help. But you don't need to carry the burden of guilt one more day. Paul says, and God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. If you're a follower of Christ today, you and I have a ministry, and that ministry of reconciliation I'm going to tell you, it's so needed in our world because we live in a very mad, angry, evil world today that needs the people of God to step into it like Jesus stepped into this world and start making things right with people in our lives, start making things right with people that are upset, people that we don't even know, people that need to be reconciled with the Father today. You and I have the ministry of reconciliation. He's passed that on to us now to take that up and to do that and to calm people that are angry and, and that are mad. The world is a mess. But God loves the world. And he has this message that the unwanted are wanted by God. And the unchosen are chosen by Him. And the unblessed are blessed by Him. So this Advent season, you can say yes to the ministry of reconciliation and include the unincluded. We have Christmas Eve services coming up, people in your life who may think they're really far from God and they're an outsider, that it's a wonderful opportunity to invite them to be a part of one of our Christmas Eve services and to really get the clarity of what this season is really all about, that we get to celebrate, amen, that we get to bring other people along in this journey, that our world is one great story. It's kind of like, wow, it's sometimes weird, and it's an amazing story, and it includes the most unlikely people. Amen? I'm just thankful that God has included me into his story, right? Who am I, right? Who am I? God has chosen me to be a part of this story. And you and I have this ministry of reconciliation to invite other people into the story. Amen? So I just want to encourage you with that. So will you choose to believe the unbelievable today? That just seems so incoherent, but that's how you know it's a God story. 
How many of you right here right now would say, I need a miracle in my family, whether it's immediate or whether it's extended family today? Can I just see your hand? How many of you, just honestly, I need a miracle. You know, somebody's away from God. There's a marriage that's messed up. There's children that are away from the Lord. You know, I just thought as we sang earlier, we talked about, you know, miracles to come, that, that God is in the miracle working business and he wants to touch our families that are so near and dear to us down deep. And so the thing, the people that we love so much, but they, they also many times hurt us so deeply. But God, there's a miracle story in the midst of the chaos that God wants to do. So, Today, as we bow our heads and close our eyes, would you just think about that place, that area right now in your family that needs a miracle, that absolutely needs a miracle? Would you just pray for that just right now? Would you just pray for that need, that miracle, that child that's away from the Lord, that grandchild that's away from the Lord, a marriage that needs to be healed, people that are going through grief, Heavenly Father, thank you. You hear us now. We bring these precious needs to you and we lift them up. Lord, we give them to you. Our families that are in need of a miracle, Lord. So many times we try to bring reconciliation and we can't do, we can't do it. We can't do it. But many times, God, as we come, we realize in through this story that, God, this is a crazy story Lord, the twists and the turns, the plots and all of that, we think, man, God, where are you? But God, you are right there in the middle of the most hardened people and that, Lord God, you love the most hardened people. And that, God, we invite you into our stories, into our homes that need a miracle, Lord, today. Lord, we ask you to show up, Lord. That's what Christmas is about. So, Lord, we give you thanks today. We thank you that you are moving in our families, the people that we really do love, the people that are precious to us, the people that maybe we have to be away from in this season. Come and bring healing. Come and bring your strength, Lord. And that, God, all of us down deep, we really want to be a part of your story. And, God, you include us in. You include us in. We as the outsiders, Lord, those who are outside of Israel, even the Canaanite, the Gentile, Lord, you have included us in this story. So, Lord, we choose to believe the unbelievable, this impossible, incoherent story because we know, God, it is your story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to get in touch or would like more resources on how to live a successful Christian life, you can always find us at myabundantlife.com. Have a blessed week.